You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And we'll start with our New Testament reading, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing in the... With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you, have, uh, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Now turn with me to our Old Testament reading and our sermon text for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 And then we'll read through chapter 6, verse 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and, his, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, 
so that the days of his years are many. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to, the, to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity in a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, in that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the, the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this glorious day, this day that you have set aside for us to, to gather and to worship. God, that we come together to, um, to be shaped by your word. And so, God, we pray that you would bring your word forth to bear in our lives, God, that it may shape um, what we believe about you and about the, the world that you've created and who we are in it. God, that it would shape um, the ways that we think, that, shape, that, it, that it would shape our affections, what we desire. God, rightly order our loves um, by your word this morning. God, thank you for this time. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, uh, I'm Justin. I'm one of the uh, parish elders here at Trinity. We send uh, Brian off to, to study uh, a couple of times a year. And so Brian is about that work right now. He, uh, if you're curious what he does on these study leaves, he reads a lot. He writes a fair amount. Uh, he's essentially framing out uh, what we'll dig into in this fall, which is Second Samuel, as we continue our work through the uh, first and second Samuel. So as Isaiah prayed this morning, I would encourage you to be praying for Brian and the Brown family as they get a little bit of a, a break and as Brian is uh, supposed to be working real hard over these couple of weeks uh, on that work. So uh, it's my joy to get to, to preach today, um, and I'm preaching the text that Isaiah just read, so this, the second part of, uh, or second two-thirds, if you will, of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and then all of chapter 6. So as we, cont- as we continue this study in Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses the, the, just as kind of a context, right? He uses the first two chapters to tell us uh, that we don't begin with our own claim of authority, we begin with the truth that God is the ultimate authority and that the place joy is to be found is something permanent and tangible and it's contrasted by vanity or vapor. He shifts in chapter 3 from examining his own life to describing God and his, God's design. And so we heard from Brian last week in the first seven verses of chapter 5 
three key things. One, to guard our steps, to avoid sin and pursue righteousness. Secondly, uh, to draw near to wisdom. In, in so doing, we listen more than we speak. And then the third, uh, to, to, to not make vows that you can't or won't fulfill. This, uh, that last point was driven home as we, as a family, took a few minutes to watch some of the coronation of King Charles and the vows that he took. And all we could, all we could say was, like, God help the king <laughs> to fulfill those vows. A sobering, a sobering event, to be sure. So today we see Solomon discuss wealth, um, a topic on which he is a supreme authority. Second Chronicles chapter 9 gives us, a, gives us a bit of a rundown of Solomon's bona fides as a really rich guy. Um, it, suffice it to say, he was pulling down somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half to two billion dollars a year in today's terms. And if that weren't enough, 1 Kings chapter 4 both reiterates his wealth and tells us that he's the wisest man ever. So, if all the, the things that he has to say, or that he will, of, of all of the things that he has to say, or will address in Ecclesiastes, uh, he's on pretty sure footing right here talking about money. So, um, I'm going to take, uh, as, as we typically do, uh, I'm going to take a few moments, share some observations from this text. We're going to read through it um, relatively thoroughly, um, and then we'll take a look at what it means for us and how we ought to live in light of it. So if you closed your Bibles, I would encourage you to open those again. Uh, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, and we're going to take first these, uh, these first two verses of our text today. So verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So, Solomon begins here with, hey, no, don't be surprised, right? Injustice and disregard for righteousness does and will continue to occur around us. This should not be a surprise to any of us. We, we right here are warned to not be amazed. This Hebrew word uh, connotes don't be frozen with fear. Don't be in shock and awe when you see, uh, I don't know, tens of thousands of people streaming down the street to a pride parade celebrating what God calls wicked. Don't be frozen with fear when you see injustice uh, or a disregard for righteousness around you. Rather, be reminded that our earthly existence is marred by sin. And there's a reality to that. And there's also a hierarchy, even all the way up to the king, who gets his food from the fields just like everyone else. He puts his pants on, his tunic on, one foot at a time. And that the only true source of justice is God. That's Solomon's point here. The same God who's not simply at the top of some hierarchical framework. He actually created the framework. He, he exists completely outside of it. He is wholly other than and not bound by the confines of that framework. He's the author of it. And justice belongs to him. 
This does not mean that we have no part in justice, but it means that we should not be frozen with fear uh, when we see it, when we encounter it. This imagery is akin to what we know about, uh, or, or what we would call the, the corporate ladder, the socioeconomic ladder. It's, a, it's this imagery of a hierarchy, of one ring or rung above another. People become so obsessed with climbing to that next rung while looking down on or even stepping on those below them and becoming all the more engrossed by and enraged by Uh, those above them as they look up who are staring down at them. And they become so fixated uh, that their entire ability to judge rightly becomes disfigured to the extent that they're now climbing at their own peril um, and and for, for no other purpose than their own fulfillment. Believing that the more that one can accumulate in terms of wealth or honor, the more satisfied one becomes. This is the, this is the rat race. This is the, the hamster wheel, right? The adept comparison to a rodent mindlessly going around and around and around without even so much the ability to enjoy the run. Some of you run, um, and, and some of you apparently in, enjoy that. Um, but here, it looks to me like, the, you know, the rat race is running for no purpose. They can't even enjoy the run. The reality is that someone will always have more than you. So don't fall prey to the latter game. Let's turn our attention to uh, these next verses uh, from chapter 5, verses 10 to 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Um, Riches are gained from a motive of gaining more riches. When you are driven by accumulation, when the motive is to just collect more and more and more, this is what Solomon describes as vapor. And it's not just vapor, it's wickedness. Because you see, the the distraction in accumulation also means that there is a negligence of carrying out the responsibility of what God's actually called you to do. And the the price for that is consumption. It's unbound, gluttonous, ravenous, insatiable greed. So that the one more, the one that more, I'm sorry, the more that one accumulates, the more people are dependent on them and the higher the stakes. So the, the bigger your business, the greater your empire, the more people you have to hire to run the thing, the more people are dependent on you, especially your family. The language in verse 14, uh, which we didn't read here, but it says uh, partway through verse 14, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The, uh, Solomon here is careful to make a distinction. We've, I think, uh, 
Brian has drawn this out once or twice before in this series, that there's a, there's a distinction between this drive toward accumula, uh, accumulation of wealth that is not aimed at fulfilling the duty of generational care or benefit. It says he is father of a son but has nothing in his hand. He's accumulating riches for his own gain, not thinking about what will he hand off? What will the inheritance be? What will the legacy be that he leaves and is able to leave for his household for years to come? No, this man is consumed by riches for his own gain and is is done to his own hurt. It is a grievous evil, as Solomon calls it. And it results in total loss and abdication of his responsibility to care for the longevity of his household. Friends, the untethered pursuit of wealth takes on a life of its own. And in so doing, it takes over your life. This is what people are, this is the anxiety around AI. Right? Are, are we going to create a thing that becomes so powerful and takes on a life of its own such that it can one day overtake us completely? Terminator. Wealth, uh, the, the untethered, untamed, mere pursuit of wealth should give us a similar concern. Verse 17 describes quite the opposite of what many of us would expect to attend wealth. Most of us have perhaps uh, daydreamed of winning the lottery or finally achieving some certain level of income. And when we, when we daydream that, we can visualize the nice cars or the, the really beautiful home on an estate, maybe a 5,000-acre estate in Scotland, which I can tell you is pristine right about this time of year. Maybe you've let your mind wander even so far as what does, or maybe you've Googled, and I'm not confessing this, though I've done this, uh, Googled, what does a 170-foot yacht cost? Just out of curiosity. What, what, where do I have to be to have a private jet? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to tell me if you've done that as well. I'm just going to assume the rest of you have done that as well. Um, but what we envision is sort of a near constant vacation with little worry in the world. And yet, that's not what Solomon describes here. What Solomon describes here is a dank, depressed life. He says, Eating in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. The end of verse 17. For this person, joy, along with the riches that he so greedily pursues, evades him. This is like when you, when you crack a fresh bowl of, uh, or a bowl of fresh eggs. And you, and you get a little piece of eggshell in the bowl with all the eggs. And you go to fish it out with your finger. What does it do? It runs from you. It evades you. You can't reach it. It's always just a little bit further than you can reach. This thing's driving me crazy. I'm sorry if that's distracting. Um, it's, like, it's like that. And maybe you've heard the quote. Uh, this was, I can't remember who this was attributed to, but you've, maybe you've heard this quote. The question is, how much money is enough? And the response is, always just a little bit more. Just one more dollar. You see, enough is always just out of reach if our satisfaction is in the accumulation. 
And so my question is this, has that principle made its way into your thinking? Perhaps you've sat down with a financial advisor who's asked you that question. What's your income goal? How much is enough? What would you be satisfied retiring on? And those things have made their way into our thinking and shaped to some extent what we believe about money. Is it enough? What is enough? In past summers, we here at Trinity have hung out in the book of Proverbs. And it turns out that Proverbs uh, has some things to say about never being satisfied. You don't have to turn here. I'll read this to you. It's Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16. It says, The leech, the leech has two daughters. Give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Now, of all of these images, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Bowler, of all of these images, having grown up as a farm kid, I've seen land never satisfied with water. And since, let's just be honest, it's my turn to preach, I can, you're a captive audience, I'm going to give you a free agricultural lesson. And I'll just tell you, I've seen fields of corn that are bone dry, like earth cracking, it's so dry. And then tens of thousands of gallons of irrigation water flowing over uh, through those rows. If you've ever seen a cornfield, hopefully you've seen a cornfield at some point in your life. Uh, When there's more dirt to be seen than corn, when the corn is real small, you see these little ditches in between each of the rows of corn. So dry, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water in a season flow over that soil and the soil just keeps Drinking it up. I recently saw a study. I'm just going to continue on this for a quick second. I saw a study that it takes 2,500 gallons of water, 2,500 gallons of water to, to produce one bushel of corn. Okay. A bushel is like nine gallons, right? Just to give you some frame of reference because you probably weren't aware of what a bushel is. So if a decent year yields about 150 bushels of corn an acre, at least in Colorado, a 100-acre field of corn will soak up 37 million gallons of water in a growing season. Land, soil that just keeps taking water. It is insatiable. We can move on now. Uh, Chapter 5, these last two uh, verses in chapter 5, 18 and 20. Uh, which reads, Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a beautiful text. This is Solomon's call to contentment, which only comes, one, by the hand of God. There is a clear and ready recognition that the only way that there is satisfaction in things is what this whole concept of contentment hinges on, which is that God has given not just the wealth and possessions, but the power to enjoy them. 
This contrasts the man I, I described uh, previously or previously described in this text insofar as the first man believes he accumulates wealth by the power of his own hand. And therefore, by necessity, he, he is fully preoccupied with accumulation and retention. He's always guarding. This is the Scrooge McDuck diving through his entire vault of gold coins and like slapping hands when someone wants a penny. Because what he has and the potential of what he believes he can attain becomes his sole source of hope and security. Even worse than that, his whole life is completely spent on consumption and accumulation. And he's not even able to enjoy what God has given him. You see, this second man that Solomon describes here sees all that he has as a gift of God. Whether that's much or whether that's little. And rather than being consumed by accumulation, he is given the power to enjoy what he's been given. And Solomon describes this even further in chapter 6, these first six verses. Let's just continue right into that. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 6, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet... God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. He goes on to describe uh, one who might father many children, which is a profound uh, indication of of wealth and success. Uh, He goes on to describe how it would be better, a stillborn child would be better off than he who might even live uh, 2,000 years, multiple lifetimes, and yet enjoys no good. Do they not wind up in the same place? You see, wealth, possessions, and honor are not in and of themselves the greatest blessings of God. Doug Wilson, in his book, Joy at the End of the Tether, which I would highly recommend, I think we have it on the bookshelf, or had it at least on the bookshelf back there, Um, highly recommend that. He uses the analogy of a can of peaches. Now, if I were to give you a can of peaches, cool, juicy, on a warm, muggy day like today, perhaps, it is absolutely true to say that I've given you a gift. Maybe peaches are your favorite, and I've given you a really great gift. What's the problem? If I give you a can of peaches and you have no way to open it, you have no can opener. The only way for you to experience the goodness of the gift of the can of peaches is that I also give you a second gift, which is a can opener. It's a way to enjoy them. Here Solomon says, you could live the most full life, have a hundred children, live many years, even multiple lifetimes worth of years. And if it is lived with all these wonderful, amazing gifts of accumulation of wealth and honor and possessions, but not be given the gift to enjoy them, it would have been better to have been stillborn, to have not lived life at all. Solomon continues in chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have? Who knows how to conduct himself before the living? 
Um, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He goes on to say, there will be one who is stronger than another. There will be uh, a future that you will not know. It, your, your life will pass away like a shadow, and you have no idea what comes after you. Solomon here says, it is better to discern the good in your present life, striving after the gift of God to enjoy the gifts God given, than to die starving in a bottomless pit of insatiability. You could collect an entire truckload of cans of peaches, a lifetime supply. But without a can opener, the entire endeavor has been in vain, a vapor, a chasing after the wind, Solomon describes. And, and how many of us fall into the false belief that wealth, that wealth is, at face value, the predominant sign of God's blessing? We cannot even accurately assess the value of our own life or someone else's, either real or perceived value, by their wealth or possessions. A person, you included, may have wealth beyond measure. And similar to a, a, a COVID patient uh, who can't taste anything at all, sitting down in front of a full Thanksgiving meal, can't taste it. They've not been granted the capacity to enjoy any of it. Whether God has given you lots of possessions, a, a swollen bank account, uh, a sore backside from sitting on all the hundos, like if you've not been given the ability to enjoy it, it's vapor. It's useless. It is sand slipping through your hands. It's nothing that you can grab hold of. So, in the relatively few minutes remaining, what are we to do with all of this? I have three points of application for you. The first one is to let the reality sink in that none of what you have is yours. None of what you have is yours. There's not one single square inch of human existence over which God hasn't declared ultimate and supreme authority. God may use you. God may give you things to steward. He may give you people. He may bring you a spouse. He may bless you with children. He may bless you with uh, wealth unimaginable or he may not and it is his prerogative and we are given to steward those things but we must remember and know that they are not ours you see many in the in the reformed tradition have come to terms with an understanding of the nature of God and salvation insofar as man was dead in his sin unable to take any step toward God if not for God enabling him to do so. What we're talking about here with wealth and possessions, these are good gifts of God, and this, the concept is not dissimilar. For as hard and faithfully and diligently as you may have worked for all the dollars in your wallet or that have ever passed through your bank account or the one in Zurich or whatever, you must acknowledge that you would have none of it if God hadn't given you first 
the capacity to work. God's given you a body. He's given you a mind. He's given you time, talents, and treasure. Those are gifts from him. Those were not assigned to you as a birthright. They are by the grace of God given to you. How about if God hadn't brought about the opportunity? What if there wasn't someone willing to pay you for your time or for that work or for that investment? What if God hadn't blessed that effort? You'd have none of it. You'd have none of it. To believe that you can make yourself a millionaire is arrogance. To believe that you can, on your own, pull yourself up by the bootstraps or be creative enough that you can eventually have an eight or nine figure bank account. It's vapor without the acknowledgement that God is the one who gives the gifts. And far more importantly, God is the one who gives the ability to enjoy those gifts. First, none of what you have is yours. Second, learn what it means to be content. What does it mean to be content? How many times have you seen Philippians 4.13 on a t-shirt or a bracelet or a bumper sticker or perhaps, okay, so if you've grown up in the church, this is going to resonate should resonate pretty well with you. If you haven't, just bear with us. The 90s Christian movement was a thing. Maybe you've heard uh, this, this verse chanted by a Christian school athletic team. I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who gives me strength. Is this true? You better say yes. It's scripture. But what's the context? Like, this has been a rallying cry for Christians blithely applied to countless endeavors. But we have to understand what Paul's getting at here in in verse, uh, the verses before this in Philippians 4. Let me just read it to you. I rejoice, this is starting in verse 10 uh, of Philippians 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length that you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Listen. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't I can do whatever I want. This isn't uh, a story of human empowerment because you uh, have a cross screen printed on your t-shirt. This is Paul acknowledging the only way, the only way that I can be content is through Jesus. And he's learned it. Friends, this is a discipline that must be learned. He says, I've learned to be content with little and, like, frankly, in many ways more challenging, I've learned to be content with abundance. If you have no need of money, if you have no real need of people except the ones who work for you, what happens to your dependence on God? 
But Paul says that by loving Jesus, by walking in obedience, by communing with him, relying on him alone, this is the means by which I can be content with however many or little possessions or wealth God has seen fit to give me. Now, if, if we shift to another example, I'm not sure that we necessarily see a robust contentment described in Job's life at the point where he's lost everything. But we absolutely see an acknowledgement that, that, uh, that it is the Lord that gives and the Lord that takes away. And Job says, blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. When the Lord decides to give much, or take those things away, or give little, the thing that matters is the enjoyment. Has God given you? Have you sought what it means to enjoy the gifts God's given you? So think about your life. The next time you open your bank app on your phone, are you content with what God has given you? The next time something breaks down, you have a costly repair in your hands, or you pull open your stock trading app and see that your big investment's taken a hit, is your response disproportionate? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you should rejoice when these things happen, that you should delight in flushing $100 bills down the toilet uh, when you find that you have to replace the sewer line in your front yard to the tune of 15 grand. You don't have to delight in that. What you should delight in is that you have a toilet and that you have some way, somehow, God's provision in that moment. What I'm saying is that Solomon's exhortation here, echoed by Paul, is that we learn to be satisfied with what gives us through Christ. That our love of Jesus must be greater than our love of money or things. We must value the giver far more than the gift. So, one, remember that it is not yours. Two, be content. What does that look like? And three, glorify and enjoy God. Friends, we must know that the, the, the greatest and most precious gift that you will ever have is found in the first question of the Westminster Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper famously turns that response to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see, while we cannot force God's hand. There is no secret recipe that we can follow that results in God being obligated to act a certain way. But what we see here from Scripture is that the gift of God's hand is really that the power to enjoy the wealth and possessions that God gives is directly tied to our love of, pursuit of, and enjoyment of God. You will never know you will never be able to enjoy the, the things that God's given you. The money, the wealth, the possessions, even the people, the friends, the children, the spouse. You will never be able to enjoy any of it without first enjoying God. 
Jeffrey Meyer uh, wrote a book called Ecclesiastes Through New Eyes. And he says this, and I'll close with this, that the sin of man is that he ceased to be hungry for God. Friends, we have ceased to see our whole lives, everything we consume, as a sacrament of communion with God. The sin of all sins, the truly original sin, is not a a transgression of mere rules, but first of all, the deviation of man's love and desire from their proper object, the Lord God himself. That man prefers something else to God. The world, possessions, children, Life, health, this is the real sin. The Lord himself is our highest good. All other goods are only good in relation to him. This is one of St. Augustine's great contributions to spirituality. He says, use and enjoy the things of this world, but love God alone. Only when we love God Are we able to properly use and enjoy the gifts God gives us in this world? Church, God alone is our hope. God alone is the source of all things. God alone rules over all things. And he must be your greatest love. It is only by loving him, obeying his commands, walking humbly before him, that we are even able to acknowledge the source of the gifts that we have and to live with joy. Let's pray and prepare for communion.